welcome to the Prickly Pens Podcast. We are on episode 80. We are three friends, three writers, sharing not only our writing journeys, but a window into our conversations around the art of storytelling in the various formats like books, films, and video games, and also selective topics that make us ponder or piss us off. Let's start with introductions. Hi, I'm Gabby. Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the Prickly Pens Podcast. So... This Take week. it away, Gabby. Sorry, I was a little bit late <laughs> on my cue. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, this week we're talking about um, classics and kind of the idea if they're still relevant. Um, uh, and yeah, that's pretty much yeah, pretty much discussion of if they're still relevant um, or important. And I mean, generally, I would say yes. Um, and studying classics is still classic literature, um, in case in case anyone's thinking like classic movies or something. Also, watch ca- classic movies too. But <laughs> but for yeah, for literature, <laughs> um, I think I think what makes something classic is its longevity. Within not necessarily has to be always culturally relevant, um, because some of these classics are written so long ago that the issues of those days are not even close to what the issues are now, but the themes and the, and the moral stories, uh, the lessons are sometimes still useful. Um, even if it's more just the general lessons useful, not maybe the specifics, um, like the issues that Jane Eyre (laughs) was facing is not (laughs) the same issues. It might be similar, but not the same exact same, um, with Edwardian, I think, it's, I think she's Edwardian. Um, Edwardian women <laughs> is not the same <laughs> issues as a modern day woman. But um, like I said, classics, I think you can still learn a lot. I, of course, you have the general like learning uh, almost the skills of writing. It reminded me of when uh, I was studying film when I first went to college. Um we had we ended up watching a lot of classic films, like old school black and white films, and it wasn't because you have to know those films to be a film director, because that's what I was studying to be. Um, but it was one of those where it's like you learn the basics, you learn the origins and the basics, so that you can break them, uh, instead of that you know how to break them. And it's not always required, of course. I mean, there's plenty of people who have you know written a book and. Not necessarily that they studied literature in school, <laughs> um, at least not in maybe college level. But I guess I feel like it's still important to, on some level, to understand maybe where modern <laughs> uh, storytelling comes from. Um, and of course, most of those books we ended up reading in middle school and high school. Forced and not to. always. <laughs> yeah, still do. Yeah, <laughs> and always not not always the most interesting. <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of books I've read that um, I read like several times. I don't. I still don't remember what they are about. Like The Giver. I've read The Giver two or three times, mm. twice in middle school, once in high school. I cannot tell you what that plot is. <laughs> Thank you for saying that out loud. Yes, I also don't understand. <laughs> 
what the plot was of that book. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the movie as well. They didn't retell it <laughs> with more clarity. Um, and then, you have, I mean, that's, I guess, would be more a slightly more modern classic. I think you have the very old ones where it's like in high school, I had to read um, like Shakespeare and Beowulf and Dante Alighieri's uh, Divine Comedy. So those are like even <laughs> even older <laughs> classics. Although I enjoyed those a lot more than I did The Giver. Um but I feel like like I said there's there the the classics carry lessons that seem to echo through time. And I guess for I guess Shakespeare, despite the fact that uh he was definitely not writing for <laughs> the modern day. <laughs> over a thousand years ago not over a thousand um, like 500 years ago um but kind of the moral lessons in say like Romeo and Juliet uh which is a tragedy um kind of like the tragedy or it was a lesson more about young love and impulsiveness and those things can still be seen today with teenagers. <laughs> like that doesn't that hasn't changed <laughs> despite time, you know. I mean, I the 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 term classic is also I think when it captures uh, the archetype of a time or of a country or of a state of uh, society. Mm. Um, so yeah. that. For, for instance, I looked at The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, who was from Baltimore, by the way. Um, here oh, in, I thought in, he was from Chicago. No, no, no. The book is set in Chicago. <laughs> oh, but, I thought, I just assumed but, he was from yeah, Chicago. Yeah, and um, he wrote The Jungle in 1906, I think. But his his philosophy as an author was that authors had a purpose and that they should either be like prophets of what's to come mm. or um, like uh, a mirror of what is happening now or somebody who in almost like investigative journalism before it was called that, but kind of like looking at either the past where he wrote a series on the civil war and America's place and so on with the civil war. But he looked at a book like uncle Tom's cabin mm. and wanted to, that, that showed, um, uh, the effects of slavery and so on. And he wanted to do something that also pulled the, the, um, revealed a part mm. of America. Um, and so he chose the meatpacking industry. Um, and at the time, there was, because he was during the era of Theodore Roosevelt, and Roosevelt had testified about the disgusting canned meat that was given to his people, um, mm. his soldiers during the Spanish-American War, um, and then Cuba and stuff like that. So he, there was already attention given to a particular industry, 
and at the time the the pro business um loose regulations um you know anti labor atmosphere was very strong and it it affected various industries and so you had these big monopolies or you'd have maybe a small number of companies that are in charge of most of the that particular industry so like oil like um and um the meat packing and he did write a book called oil and that was the loosely based movie was um and there will be blood Mm. It was, um, oh, that was yeah, good. Yeah, it it was Upton Upton Sinclair's book mm. that pushed that along, and you have other Hollywood movies that also focus like on that. various mm-hmm. parts of American um, like working class yeah. and factories and things like that. So, I know we were speaking about classes overall, but for the for the jungle, like I said, I I focused on one particular thing as an example of like the American classic, and mm. um, his was the the archetype of the American narrative of we're we're considered exceptional. Well, we kind of consider ourselves exceptional. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Not at this time. (laughs) But he was focused on disappointed expectations and the familiar American story of failure, of soured hopes, of emotional alienation and cultural confusion in place of community and identity. And it's almost the rags to riches. Mm -hmm. But his, his was... It was rags to to like destitute, <laughs> and then because at the time he then became a socialist, he kind of made the end of his story that the solution to um, to this inequality at these business of these businesses and of society governments and so on was socialism so at the very end he does this um big speech about the uh protagonist becoming a socialist Mm -hmm. and solving you know you're going to solve the problems by doing these various things that when you look at it in modern even modern day and even back then it wasn't practical um but you know, just an F, just a little more tidbit about Upton Sinclair. He, after the book, it was it was um, people were more. <laughs> he 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 didn't get the expectation he wanted. Where it it was a bestseller, but readers were more focused on the meat oh, <laughs> issues <yeah. laughs> than the work issues, and he was trying to get their attention on the work, the work. you know, the yeah. meat. Yeah. But, but look at these people who are losing limbs and having to work in these awful conditions. Um, Maybe because I guess for people, it's like the one thing you can change, like, you know, you probably won't be able to change 
the working conditions, but at least maybe be able to eat better. Change the mood. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's... I mean, I guess because the, the... Well, that was the Industrial Revolution, but, like, it's been going on for decades, so maybe at that point you're not thinking well, that I, it will change. So. But even now, we don't care about who's working in the plants. No. You know, as a society, as not a society, individual. Yeah, exactly. As a society, we, we don't hear care. We here at Prickly Pens care. But <laughs> society in general. Because you know, pre-pandemic, you had raids on on um, meatpacking plants. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and while his book was focused on an illegal immigrant from Lithuania, we had... Um, workers where you would hear oh they're from from Mexico or from the mm-hmm. other parts of Central America or South America and then you know 10 years later 15 years later the new group was Somalians who were um or Somali um uh, uh people who were being worked at the at the meat packing plants and post pandemic I don't even know who's working at the plant because half the times they were saying that they had shortage of people uh, because of the crackdown of the plants. So that um, the the point is that you still need immigrant help for these things, and and that because they're under the um, illegal immigrant status, they don't get rights, they don't get benefits, they don't get so the it's might not be as bad as 1906 factory but at the same time it's still, still bad certain things are still there yeah. um in place uh so so as a classic um he revealed a part of the american um industrial age mm yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I feel like American classics are very much, yeah, a, not a lesson, but kind of. Yes, <laughs> but sometimes that's why they're classics because they continue to teach something that's relevant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to people, just like the animal farm, which I, <laughs> I mean, once I started uh, reading it, I was like, oh god, this is so depressing. But basically, it's. Yeah. Um, it's labeled as a beast fable, and it was written by George Orwell. It was first published in England, um, August 17th, 1945. And it's basically a story about a group of, and I can't even pronounce this, but I will try, anthropomorphic mm-hmm. farm yeah. animals. So basically they have human characteristics. They're speaking, talking, thinking. Um, who rebel- They rebel basically against the human farmer because they feel like, the way he's running the farm is like horrible, terrible. They would never do it that way. So they get rid of them and they create their own rules, but things become darker. Their, I guess their thinking changes. I mean, I, hello, it was written a long time ago, so it's not like I can do spoilers. But, you know, basically at the end of the story, because of the way the animals created the rules and didn't follow the rules and then there was a dictatorship by a pig named Napoleon the farm ultimately ended up in a state worse than it was in so when they were asking George Will about the story he basically said um, it reflects events leading up to the Russian Revolution and he wrote it purposely 
against the Soviet Union and the Stalinistic era that was taking place. And it's very political. It was the purpose was to fuse political purpose and artistic purpose into one whole. Mm. And it still stands the test of time because, you know, it's a lesson in how things can go very poorly, even though you have good intentions to begin with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the arrogance of power and how power can corrupt. Yeah. 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 I mean, it still happens politically. It's still, All the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can have the best intentions, I think it's... the success of these authors um, are when they're able to delve so deeply into these issues and and whether it's that they give it to you in gritty reality mm-hmm. or in a speculative really, fiction yeah. environment it's like symbolic. Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still something that we recognize uh, how um, it, it's a mirror to to yeah. ourselves. Right? I feel like there's two, almost two types of classic. You have the kind of probably, I would say, vaguely mod, more modern classic like George Orwell's work mm-hmm. or something like The Jungle um, where it's, or even like a Great Gatsby type where it's reflecting on society and politics and classism and social issues that usually are still happening today. And I feel like there's that's one type of classic. And then you have like the older classics that like the Shakespeare's and stuff where mm-hmm. those lessons may not be as relevant um, because those some of those stories are so old that it's right. like those issues don't even exist. But they defined a genre. Like they created their own genre. Um, and you have that with, I was like, I guess, like I said, like the Divine Comedy where despite the fact that, I mean, it was basically a guy doing almost like Christian poems, but it defined <laughs> very much um, Christian imagery mm-hmm. for the next thousand years. <laughs> and Shakespeare's work has defined like drama and tragedy and theater. And, uh, so the lessons aren't quite the same, but, but it's like, it, it it's almost made its own mark <laughs> in like how people own tell footprint. a story. Right. Um, and you have that too with, um, even like the ones who are the beginning of their genres, like, a like even, I guess, Tolkien would be classic fantasy, mm. uh, but most fantasies are like based off of him. Most of the people who have written writing fantasy now, even if they never read Tolkien, they've read someone who read Tolkien. Right. <laughs> so it's like it's like you have one half of classics where it's almost like you said, an expression of lessons and of society that we right. can still use. And then right. the other half are like defined a type of writing. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they mix together. <laughs> sometimes they are. Um, yeah, sometimes they mix together. But uh, or you have what's his name, um, like H.P. Lovecraft, where mm. he made cosmic horror, like his writing style. Alan is, Edgar Poe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that too. Yeah, he he also did. He, yeah, 
I think the, the more depressing ones quite yeah, right. seem to define yeah. different genres. But yeah, it's 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 like yeah, it's almost like you give two sets of classics, and like I said, sometimes they mix together. Um, where I guess for like Tolkien, his I mean he didn't write a. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff he wrote was based on experiences from World War One. Mm-hmm. Of course, he is not writing a one-to-one about World War One, but very much the idea of good and evil. Right. But he was um, also in reaction to the literature that was coming out yeah, post-World War One, where right. it was so depressing yeah. that he felt that there needed to be a clear... Yeah. Um, story or yeah. uh, or creation, myth creation that yeah. showed the power of good over evil. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, like, H.P. and Tolkien are both World War One, and, and H.P. Lovecraft's is quite um, dark. Yeah. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. a cynic. Uh, and, yeah, I would say Tolkien is a lot more optimistic. Yeah. Um and and I and I guess because of um so things like world wars yeah. <laughs> can shape what yeah. literature we have. We also have as many forms of government and um governing bodies that we come up with as civilizations. Mm-hmm. Uh we have stories to either um, tear them apart or analyze them or uphold them or even build upon them. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that, I think, was part of um, even Animal Farm was Mm. was about communism. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. about communism. And then Gulliver's Travels was another... um, That was about... It was about colonialism. It was about... um, I don't know if it was about capitalism, but... But we have, and like I mentioned, Handmaid's Tale is about the oh, repression, yes. yeah. repressive governments, and Lord knows we are living Ugh. in the world of several repressive governments, yeah. including right here in the U.S. That's and, correct. Um, uh, you know, and autonomy, bodily autonomy, gender. Um, so there's, oh, there's just in our lives as as there's enough things and source material, yeah. and I think. It's based on what the author, like Upton Sinclair, felt he had a role as an author to do. Um, And I think, so the classic is somebody who is, to me, the author is somebody who is very much feels that it's a mission, like it's it's mission work. Um, Mm -hmm. When you look at their backgrounds of why they wrote that particular story, it's something that they were focused on um, yes. with Something a that purpose or, a, hmm, or right. they, you know, it's not just, they're not sitting there writing it as far as the ones we had to read at school. They always had this backstory of why they wrote that particular exactly. story. Exactly. Yeah. And, or what happened in their life or something yeah. um, like a tragedy in their life uh, may have prompted a certain tone or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely, I feel like 
classics also reflect, I guess, the fears of the time. Yeah. That is being written. That's a good way to put it. Um, I mean, you see that a lot with, like, even early classical science fiction stories like War of the Worlds, Mm -hmm. where invasion was the scariest thing. And at the time that was written, it would have been invasion from Germany or Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Soviet Union, because I can't remember exactly when that came out. But I think it was beginning of the Cold War. So it's like the idea of someone invading, which would be the Soviet Union, um, was terrifying. And then also we were beginning the space race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I mean... Of course, it was before we went to the moon. So we're thinking, like, if we if we can even get to the moon, that means we'll maybe find out more stuff. And mm-hmm. it's like the idea of, like, what if there's something bigger than us? And so it's like those fears came out <laughs> in those stories. Right. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, the diary of Anne Frank is like, yeah. talk yeah. about fear. Yeah. Um, oh. Nothing but fear. And and from a, a young person. Yeah. Um. So it is. It's so. It's not. Sometimes when we read yeah. these, especially as kids, we might read it and go, "Well, it's boring." Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, or, <laughs> yeah. I guess. I mean, I found that too. Like sometimes it was like it's boring. Right. But I'm uh, a kid in the U.S. In, yeah. In right. In a privileged point and like living in a suburb in well, sometimes you can't you know? really it's pick up like, the nuances that right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think right. that's where the teacher comes in with exactly. the with with their expertise in guiding you to yeah. understand. Okay, think Asking about it this way. Probing yeah. questions, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think if you focus on just one element versus trying to understand this entire story, mm-hmm. but just focusing on one element or two elements of uh, the theme or the yeah. or the morals of the story right. or something, then. Yeah. It's easier to, uh, as a as a kid, I think it would be easy to then say, okay, I don't have to understand Moby Dick, the complete yeah. thing about Moby Dick. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if somebody broke it down to, yeah. you know, because it's what man will versus be nature, on the test. Like it's obsession, yes. yeah, <laughs> like dangerous obsession, yeah. And, right? Yeah, um, I mean, even like 1984, George Orwell, which came out in 54. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's funny because I always see people comment like on t- not well not Twitter I don't go to Twitter or X whatever you want to call it um, <laughs> but on other like Instagram or something someone will say oh this is like you know they'll say new technology helps mm-hmm. track eyes or something and people are like oh 1984 and it's like we've been in 1984 since 1984 <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> once once a cell phone was invented <laughs> we already yeah. are we can I mean you look at when they show stuff from like during the cold war mm-hmm. um when there was the the whole red panic mm-hmm. of communism in the US and just western countries in general uh they were already tracking people yeah <laughs> so <laughs> it's like it's not new yeah no. um I was telling Gabby there was in the news yesterday I saw or today that uh, because it's Labor Day weekend here in the U.S. that people usually have parties and and cookouts and things like that. Mm -hmm. So in New York, the mayor um, is putting drones up 
so that they can spy on people's backyard parties and block parties because their complaints are that they've become so big. Some places (laughs) you have all these people having their party and loud and all this other stuff. But there's a lot of um, privacy things that seem to be... um, not a concern to the government. Right. And I'm like, you're just setting yourself up for lawsuits. A because lot of lawsuits. <laughs> but lot. the mayor of New York City is an ass. So yeah, um, I don't even know how he got in there. But uh, I mean, there were so many but the, better, better people. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, what's it called? The, but he runs it like a police state, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Or is trying to, rather. Yeah. Right. The, um, yeah, but at this point, like, I forgot who I was looking at, but it was an article, and they're pretty much like, unless they're like, the moment you step at your house, even if you're in your own yard, they're like, the moment you step in your house, step outside of your house, uh, you are recorded by something. Whether it's the camera on your neighbor's like yawn, lawn that is, yeah. you know, recording, well, or you have your phone in your pocket, and Google is already tracking the movements just so they can send you advertisements for McDonald's because they know you're going to pass one eventually. Um, But, yeah. Well, that's how January 6th um, uh, terrorists were caught because their phone also showed where they were. And so when they they try to say that they weren't near the Capitol or, you know, whatever, their phone gave them away. Yeah, right. um, Idiots. You don't even need it on. (laughs) Like, it works without it on. (laughs) Um, So glad they're getting caught and... um, Yeah, yeah, 1,000 and a heck of a lot more to go. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. some, I would say there's some... Just get back to classics. There's some classics. (laughs) Sorry, guys. No, it's fine. (laughs) Um, There's some classics that I feel like even now as an adult, I'm like, mm, I don't know what the point of this was, but, um, or I get the point, but. Mm. <laughs> well, some aren't timely. No, it's no, not they're, timely. they're very much no, like. Some aren't. Um, their time. Like to me, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as much as I love uh, watching the movies every once in a while, um, I don't find them timeless. relevant. I keep saying timely, timeless. Some yeah. aren't timeless. I don't right. find them as relevant yeah. now. Um, right. About a a chocolatier who took some people from some random country, <laughs> the Oompa Loompas. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, well, also, it's fantastic. a weird story. <laughs> like, I know he's well, supposed to be whimsical, it's a, but it's, it's like, it's not fun whimsical. Yeah. I mean, it has a lot of racist tropes. So, yeah. Um, we've sanitized it with um, first the goofy version with uh, Depp. No. Uh, Gene, Gene, oh, Gene Wilder, Gene yeah. Wilder, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. and then the weird version with Johnny, yeah. and now we're gonna do another one with Timothy, yeah. Timothy Chalamet or whatever his name yeah. is. So yeah. we just wouldn't let the darn thing die. <laughs> yeah, so- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of the oh, and then boy. some of them we've like kind of changed, like how the, the original Peter Pan. Is different than Disney's Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. And then the stuff, if you were to read, like, I mean, the guy who wrote Peter Pan was writing it. I mean, it's, it's a kid's story. But some of the stuff, when you look at the the intricate details of Peter Pan, I'm like, this is kind of sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, about, it's basically about kids. Uh, it's like escapism um, mm-hmm. from whatever unfortunate situation they had in, like, it was, I think, written around World War One. Oh, jeez. Um because, like, Peter Pan, 
I mean, he's, I think he's younger than he, than he is in like the Disney one, mm-hmm. but, um, like the kids on the Lost Boys, they're children that were lost by their nannies by accident. Oh my God. Are you and, serious? And then they end up, yeah, they end up in Neverland and Peter takes care of them. Because they and died? so it's like it's not exactly <laughs> well some 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 people interpreted that they died and, oh. and so it's like it's it's kind of a and then it's kids that don't grow up and even though it's like as a child you're like yeah you don't you know don't ever grow up but there's an I there's kind of like a hint that Peter's been there for a while right. <laughs> longer than someone should be and he um, doesn't age. It, <laughs> he doesn't age, but then he like first f- the first girl he gets is Mary, who's in uh of course the books, and then it's like he stays basically with the family. So the next generation he gets Jane, the daughter, and then the next generation he gets the kids after that. And it's like oh, geez. so he's not growing up, but they're going on with their lives. And even though it's supposed to be like, Oh, he taught them how to have fun right. <laughs> like but this kid is not growing up and he doesn't even remember his parents and stuff. So oh, there's gosh. like a weird you know That is very strange, like a little horror yeah. movie. A little yeah. bit Oh God. Okay. Yeah, so it can be interpreted in a slightly sad way, even though right. it's a kid's story and he wrote it for a as right. for children. Um well, I know, and, like, fables that were written, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, originally <laughs> yeah. are horrific, horrific yeah. in some of the details that I have, so not surprised. Yeah. I mean, the original, like, Cinderella, not Cinderella, um, I'm sure that one's, oh, you know, original Cinderella, Cinderella is pretty bad. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Uh, the original yeah. um, Little Mermaid is sad. Because she couldn't fit the shoe in Cinderella, right? Uh, the sisters couldn't, so they like cut up they their cut feet. Their f- cut their feet. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> now go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the things she, you do for a prince. Right. She like oh, I forgot. It's like she puts like when she gets the prince at the end. I think she puts like either the shoes. She puts the, like she p- makes them made out of iron and puts makes them wear like in a fire so it burns their feet something like that it's something with like a hot cauldron mm. at the end and i was like "Ooh, that's intense and <laughs> and and like the little mermaid she dies at the end yeah like i think it was like one of the angels or gods or something is uh punishes her so she has to um she turns into sea foam she's yeah. punished she can't go up to heaven until she makes like a hundred kids laugh or something like that children oh laugh God. but every time a children a child cries she stays on earth for another ah. whatever so it's like it's not a oh my god that's awful story. that is a These horror story mis- misogynistic um yeah. stories <laughs> yeah. Yeah. because it, no women wrote those things <laughs> yeah because we're too smart and would never do that yeah <laughs> beauty and the beast is similar and there's some like weird yeah <laughs> there's some weird thing but mm-hmm. yeah but yeah those are i mean I mean, we can talk probably for a long time about (laughs) classics and how relevant they are but i mean like i said some i think are still relevant some aren't but like i said i i feel like like i said there's two camps the ones that are that are have the moral lessons that we can still use today and still learn from and then you have the ones that like like i said made genres or made writing styles that we now love yeah and you know love to interpret yeah yeah that's right and sometimes they don't work and that's okay yeah, it's okay. So there you go. 
So you can try a classic out and see. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, I, um, I grab them from the library. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, those there's books the, that you got from school that you didn't read. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very old ones, like, yeah. even as far as what the Iliad is technically a classic. Yeah. Which is not relevant to today's issues, but, you know, you want to read about some Greeks. <laughs> but it captures history yeah. um, of that time, yeah. of the people who were writing after the fact or what they were creating, their, what their belief systems might yeah. be and what they valued as literature yeah, and so on. So, yeah. Okay. Well, the next portion is um, a part that was recorded at a different time. So, um, tone is a little different and it is... <laughs> I can't remember. How we were, at upbeat, right. a little down, quickly. <laughs> we were down. Um, well, it, I was talking about something that's not, it's the Windrush scandal and mm-hmm. bringing up the fact that of UK's um, passport uh, rules. And one of the things that I forgot to mention in both times that I talked about this was that in addition to providing a birth certificate and so on, I had to get um, somebody who was a U.S. U.K. citizen um, to verify my uh, identity. That's and, crazy. And also tell how um, long they knew me. And it's only a certain, it was a short list of professions that were allowed. So no doctor could validate my identity um it had to be certain people and so i had found my friend who was we were friends since um primary school and she submitted um the documentation so while you will hear me rant about everything she had also included her thing that i was who i was and it still was not enough so there you go yeah. Enjoy. So, yeah, the next section pre-recorded, but uh, but important to listen to. Yep. So I am going into the a general overview of a an issue that Scott is is personal, um, and also um, currently still happening and. And this time uh, it is in England. And this came up in my head when um, I was trying to get my passport. And if anybody listens to the podcast, it was the podcast where um, I said, we're back. And there was a, a segment of the podcast where I was talking about the troubles I was having getting my passport um in England, and technically it was a renewal, but because the my original passport was old, they made me go through the process as if I was getting a brand new passport. And at that time, when I was applying, they would not accept my documents, which were certified copies of birth certificate, adoption certificate, um old passports that I sent in and so on. And it was a three, about a three month process um, where I filed a complaint saying that I felt that they were treating me unfairly and randomly. And then they wrote me, you know, back. But in the meantime, I had uh, 
there were a lot of calls too, because I was also talking to um, people in the customer service uh, um, office or whatever to this. And one guy, when I was explaining what was happening, um, because at the same time, Gabby had gotten her stuff off of my documents. So my documents were good for her, not good for my stuff. And he said, oh, I know what the problem is. You're part of the Windrush um, thing. I've, I know what the Windrush thing was. So I didn't think that I was a part of that problem because, again, I've had, at the time, three passports, three or four passports from England. So I shouldn't be lumped in with the Windrush um, issue. Um. But, you know, hindsight, it could have been that is what triggered the um, person working on my paperwork. It could have been what triggered um, their asinine um, attitude with my my uh, paperwork. So let me tell you about the Windrush um, issue. Um, so the Windrush scandal was a British political scandal that began in 2018. So that's when it, you know, stuff hit the fan was in 2018, but it goes further back. Concerning people who were wrongly detained, denied legal rights, threatened with deportation, and in at least 83 cases wrongly deported from the UK by the Home Office, Many of those affected had been born British subjects and had arrived in the UK before 1973, particularly from Caribbean countries, as members of the Windrush generation, so named after the Empire Windrush, that was the ship that brought one of the first groups of West Indian migrants to the UK in 1948. Now, my parents got to the UK in um, 1954-ish. Um, yeah, something like that. Because they, they lived in the UK for 14 years. They came from Guyana um, and didn't know each other in Guyana. They, they came separately um, and met in, in uh, London. They lived in the Balham area. And... It was, um, but I'll get to that. As well as those who were deported, an unknown number were detained, lost their jobs or homes, had their passports confiscated, or were denied benefits or medical care to which they were entitled. A number of long-term UK residents were refused re-entry to the UK. A larger number were threatened with immediate deportation by the Home Office. In March of 2020, an independent Windrush Lessons Learned review, and boy, the UK love to do frickin' reviews and, and reports, which is great, but, no, but sometimes nobody um, follows Learn the recommendations. Yeah. So this review concluded that the Home Office had shown ignorance and thought, thoughtlessness 
and that what had happened had been foreseeable and unavoid and avoidable. It further found that immigration regulations were tightened with complete disregard for the Windrush generation and that officials had made irrational demands for multiple documents to establish residency rights. Despite a compensation scheme being announced in December 2018, by November 2021, only an estimated 5% of victims had received any compensation oh. And 23 of those had died before receiving payments. Three separate parliamentary committees had issued reports during 2021 criticizing home office slowness and ineffectiveness in providing redress to victims and calling for the scheme to be taken out of the hands of the home office. By the way, Suella <laughs> Braverman, the woman that looks like a horse, is now running the home office before then it was you remember uh <laughs> prime minister margaret that not him margaret thatcher um theresa may the british nationality act in 1948 gave citizens of the U the uk and colonies status and the right of settlement in the uk to everyone who was at that time a british subject by virtue of having been born in a british colony so right. at the time british guyana was british guyana so my parents were automatically citizens um of the uk the law and encouragement from British government campaigns in Caribbean countries led to a wave of immigration. Because remember, after the Second World War, England was, you know, hit with labor shortage. Of course, you had so many deaths, but they had a lot of rebuilding to do. So they came to the, to the Caribbean islands and campaigned with this law that they had just passed and, um, you know, getting at that point Elizabeth and all of them involved in getting uh, people to leave their countries for, you right. know, work, better life and so on. So between 1948 and 1970, nearly half a million people moved from the Caribbean to Britain, which in 1948 faced the severe labor shortages, as I said. Those who came to the UK around that time were later referred to as the Windrush generation. Working age adults and many children traveled from the Caribbean to join parents or grandparents in the UK or traveled with their parents without their own passports. I know my mom's mom came, um, later came to the UK and lived with her. So, like I said, my parents came in 1954 separately. My mother, she would talk about the experiences um, of that time and how racist it was. The um, living conditions weren't ideal. Oh, the landlords were hellacious. The whole, you know, list of things on a door that said, you know, no blacks, <laughs> Irish, dogs. And I think the dogs were above the Irish. Um and so on. Um, the jobs that she held were um, uh, kind of laborious, um, think sweatshop style. 
Um, she eventually went to a secretarial school, but I remember she had this one job. She, she's like, I was cutting lemons and the acid from the lemons were burning her fingers. Um, and you know, you couldn't complain. You couldn't, no one gave you anything to help you and stuff like that. Um, my father and I, on the other hand, he was quieter about what he faced, um, in England, he went to school at the Polytechnic um, College for civil engineering. And, um, but the one thing he talked about was when he went to church. And, um, and I had mentioned this way earlier in one of the podcasts, is where he was sitting in the church and the people, the congregation, complained to the pastor, priest, or whatever, that he was upsetting them. His presence was upsetting them. And the priest came to him and asked him to move to the back um, so that they wouldn't be upset. And that, he said, when he left, he left the church um, after the priest came. And (laughs) my father never went back. To anybody's church and when he died he was like I do not want to be in a church you know for a service or anything like that so we ended up doing um, you know outside of church we were like in a community center um, and he was cremated and, and we did the service there um, he just had never ever returned to the church. He never embraced uh, Christianity um, after that. I think he was so devastated by that that it was just like a no. So when Guyana declared their bid for independence from Britain, and they, the incoming prime minister, campaigned, um, he went to all the islands and asked for people to return not islands, um, uh, England and Canada and America, and asked for them to come come back and rebuild their country. So out of um, pride, a lot of them went back. Um, a lot of my parents' friends had lived in England, left Guyana, lived in England, but they returned to help build um, Guyana. And my father never went back to the UK, had no desire, did not care. He had property. He just did not care. Um, my mom, she went back, um, eventually, um, and sold off the last bit of property they had, but, um, she had no love for that place. Um, and so my attachment to the UK was minimal in terms of any kind of emotional connection. It was more Caribbean um, based on my parents' uh, upbringing. When I got in touch with my birth mother, she's more British <laughs> because she went to she went to England when she was twelve. Um, her father was already had already left Jamaica and was living in the UK in the same area. And then he brought her over when she was 12. Um, So her experience with England compared to my mother um, and father's was completely 
different. Um, not that she didn't face the same things, but as a kid growing up, I think she assimilated better to um, the British life. And even now, she's she doesn't have like one foot in Jamaica and one foot in, in England. She's pretty, pretty much a, um, a Brit. And um, so her kids are very much British. They don't they don't have any connection to uh, like Jamaica or going back. I think only one had gone back to Jamaica, but for the rest of them, they they don't see that as home. Um, So anyway, this welcome mat of inviting immigrants to England was short-lived as legislative measures in the 1960s and early 70s limited the rights of citizens of these former colonies that are now members of the Commonwealth. Um, anyone who had arrived in the UK from one of these countries before 1973 was granted automatic right permanently to remain unless they left the UK for more than two years. And since this right was automatic, many of them never bothered to, um, they were never given or asked to provide documentary evidence of their right to remain at that time or over the next 40 years. So imagine you came, you supposedly have a right now to stay, no documentation is given to you to stay, and you feel that you are protected as a British citizen. So um, in comes uh, good old Tories, And at the time, Theresa May, who became prime minister, she was head of the home of uh, the home office. And her aim was to create and let me put this in quotes, a really hostile environment for illegal immigrants. End quote. The policy was widely seen as part of a strategy of reducing UK immigration to the levels promised in the 2010 Conservative Party election manifesto. Ever, you know, so do you ever notice that when political parties run out of ideas and strategies to move a country forward, that they rely on the immigration dog whistle to distract? And with the collusion of like tabloid news and the classism that is in, um, England, it always works. Look at it right now. They're they're frothing of the mouth over migrants that are coming to the UK. So this conservative policy introduced measures including a legal requirement for landlords, employers, the national health system, charities, community interest companies, and banks to carry out ID checks and to refuse services to individuals uh. unable to prove legal residence in the UK. And and this is why when we were trying, Gabby and I were trying to, um, when we were looking into England, and she's mm. moving to England, that it's difficult because of these stupid rules that they put in place to so-called halt um, rights and benefits that supposedly afforded to immigrants. It's it's difficult to get yeah. any of these things before you have the legal residence. So you can't get a bank account in if you don't have a legal <laughs> residence. Egg, you can't get a legal out. residence without a bank account. Right. Yeah. 
So the, and po- the only right. reason I'm fine is because I have a British passport. Right, and we got the citizen. British passport, but yeah. the policy coincided with sharp increases in fees for processing leave to remain, naturalization, and registration of citizenship applications. And part of why I'm going through this is to show you how evil this political uh, party and and um, have been to these people who they needed to build that damn country, um, to rebuild that country. The BBC reported that the Home Office had made a profit of more than £800 million from the services between 2011 and 2017. So they forced... The um, they changed the immigration laws. They raised the fees for you to file for uh, citizenship, and um, and Theresa May says that the hostile environmental environment policy would remain their government policy. So. From 2013, the Home Office received warnings that many of the Windrush Generation residents were being treated as illegal immigrants and that older Caribbean-born people were being targeted. The Refugee and Migrant Center in Wolverhampton said their caseworkers were seeing hundreds of people receiving letters from the Home Office contractor telling them that they had no right to be in the UK, some of whom were told to arrange to leave the UK at once. And roughly half the letters went to people who had already had leave to remain. So they already were being processed to remain in the UK, and they were being told that they had to leave. And they were even putting people... Um, so... You would lose your job, you would lose your health care, your benefits would be cut off, um, and then you were deported. Some people were deported to countries that weren't even in the Commonwealth. So once you were there, the government didn't care because they weren't going to try to help you come back. Wow. Um, And and some people people were were moved, moved out when, like, they immigrated when maybe they're like one or two and you're sending them to countries they've never been. Right. There's no con like, it's, yeah, it's like yeah. there's no real, there's no connection, connection there. You're, you're sending people back. So the only official records of arrival for many of these Windrush immigrants in the 1950s through to the early 1970s was a landing card. And it was collected at the UK port when you came in, which was in Essex. In subsequent decades, these cards were routinely used by the British immigration officials to verify dates of arrival. In 2009, the cards were earmarked for destruction as part of a broader cleanup of paper records. So the only document that these people had, you not only took it, but then you planned to destroy it. And then you turn That's around crazy. and say, prove to me that you belong here. Prove to me that you were born, which is what the person was doing to me. They were like, I was like, here is my certified copy of my birth certificate. And they were like, prove, prove that you are who you are from this year, from birth to this to the last passport. So you dismissed all the passports that I've had as if I had fake passports and 
I have to now prove my existence to you and that I existed in your country. Um, so a lot of people aren't paid. A lot of things aren't happening. Um, and the 75th anniversary was just uh, a few days ago. And so Charles um, allowed for whoever, the Royal Collection. They had people that were selected from the Windrush generation and artists. Um, I don't know if the artists were descendants of the Windrush generation, but they painted them and in, in uh, did portraits of them. And they're going to be officially included in the Royal Collection to show, you know, I guess, you know, we're welcoming the... Um, these people who are the fabric of British society and so on. Um, and, but for the most part, the, um, the final review on this is that Suella Braverman um, has not follow through on a bunch of the um, recommendations. They have uh, basically dismissed the whole bunch. They said it has been recently uncovered that of the 30 reforms that were recommended to Suella Braverman's home office, she has only instituted eight, eight of the 30. Another 13 have been only partially met and nine have not been met or have just been dropped. So I, you know, my, my anger and irritation over um, British hypocrisy on being this polite and um, civil (laughs) society um, is matched with my contempt for the leaders of the Commonwealth who to me have not fought hard enough. They brought their concerns to um, the, I guess the ambassador or whoever who's representing and Downing Street refused to meet with them, which was, would have been Theresa May um, refused to meet with them. And in other ways they've been rebuffed. And I'm like, you have you have a platform because every freaking year um, the royals are rolled out to welcome the Commonwealth um, to Britain and they put on their talent show in St. Paul's Cathedral and everybody claps and so on. And I'm like, that's the time that you come and you you voice your 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 concerns. Um, you don't need parades of William and Kate in a damn Land Rover driving through waving at the brown yes. people. Um, this is <laughs> this is serious because this is your citizens, despite the fact that they they left your country and went to work in um, the motherland of, uh, you know, Im- British imperialism, they are still your citizens. And you should make sure that they are being treated... Um, fairly and when they're deported and improperly deported that you look after them but you know i think power everybody wants the the sir and the and the the dame um titles and 
so it's all performative with this commonwealth and so my contempt for them is just as strong and thank you barbados for cutting the the cord finally took you long enough but finally um and i hope that some others I just cannot... uh, follow through so yes that's my you go but strong that's, uh, passionate really feelings outrageous. so they basically <laughs> went on a seeking journey please come to our country basically to use people yeah. for yeah. their own benefit mm-hmm. they offered citizenship and right. now that you know time has yeah. passed and no one's you know looking too hard yeah yeah right Right. Yeah. Oh, wink, like, wink, nod, should nod. You be here? Pack them up and send oh, them off. Unbelievable. Let's Just bring really those outrageous. numbers back down. Yeah. 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 So when I see them talking about labor shortage now and after the pandemic and having to go after find break, people, yeah. yeah, I want to say, be careful. <laughs> no, but after Brexit, you have Europeans are like, I'm not going. Right. Well, that was the thing. Well, that's why they want to go to Asia yeah. and and India and people so on and come. get people and 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 people will come because times, you know, because it is a it is opportunity and it is a for a lot of people, it's a better life and and a chance to you know get them. Get something, yeah. get a piece of the pie. I understand that, but in seventy right. years, <sighs> it'll happen right. again. Right, it will happen again, and and the fact that the names that I mentioned are still in politics, like there was no repercussion to the scandal, and the outrage from the British public yeah. is not right. as reverberating, right, as you would think. And and even among the the black and brown community, it is not as strong as it should be because you have African um, Brits who have come over who it's like, well, that's your problem. You have the the British, the Caribbean British who have settled in and it's like, I don't have that problem. So it's it's crazy. And. And I guess for me, well, it hasn't affected them, and and they right. they haven't been kicked out yet. But once right. they do, then it'd be like, oh, help me, right? And so I and I and for me, it wouldn't have right. really impacted me until I went through this process, and until the guy, because right. I wasn't even thinking Windrush, because I'm thinking I have my passports. Uh, what are you talking about? And so when he was like, oh, and you were born there too, right? When he was like, oh, he's like, because your parents were in British Guyana. Uh Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, I bet it's that. Well, my mom had a a passport. I know that she had a passport because I saw the passport. But they're also, their thing was that they don't have it digitized. I'm like, how the hell do you not have anything digitized at this point where you're willing to ship people off because they don't, they don't have paperwork, but you also don't have the freaking like, paperwork wink, either. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like, um, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, England's record keeping is quite backwards. Yeah, and, and and that was the thing, and and they're telling me they're like, well, you know, we don't have we don't have um, any of this stuff, and I, it's like, so there's no record that you gave me three passports. There's no record that um, 
I'm giving and you it, the certified copy of the birth certificate. I don't know what else to give you. And it's also so weird because, like, in America, everything is so digitized. And so, like, I have been on record for many things because I, since I've, right. you know, studied abroad and stuff, it's like I usually have to get my biometrics done. So my fingerprints <laughs> and, my, and my face and my eyeball has been yeah. nice and lasered into the record. So I am well known I mean, about who I am. Records. So the idea of like, it's oh, we don't have like a record down. It's like, what? It's but like especially the for ones that produce the, the it's records. It's their own records. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And so either your home office is in, incredibly incompetent and you keep appointing <laughs> people who have no soul, no common sense. I mean, it's like the recruitment for the head of a home of the home office is like, let's go into a cesspit and just find anything and put it out there. Because those are the type of people who are running it because they have a passion yeah. to like they said it limit immigration. Loud. Like like they are frothing uh, at the unbelievable. mouth. Unbelievable. Yeah. Out loud. And 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 so Pretty Patel, who's like Dolores Umbridge yeah. of uh, you know, of whatever you know, she, she just got her her honors thing, so she's now Dame Pretty uh. Patel because Boris Johnson, who uh he's another one, but his honors list was was so awful to go along with his awfulness that this person gets to have dame and that is that is what drives these people it is not the people it is not you know fairness it is to be in the elite to have this like i want to be part of the upper class and and it it's even the person who's Supposedly, if you go with the class system, who is at the bottom has that I want to be in the upper class. So I don't care about I'm not going to affect them because if I change that system, I will never get to there. And that is the mentality that I see um, when I'm looking from across the pond. And so this is the American in you coming out. Yes, the American in me. I I never thought that I had any Americanism. I always (laughs) felt like I was just. Um, nomad, <laughs> but when I have to deal with you British got, got bull, bull yeah. poop, um, yeah, it comes out. It comes out real strong. <laughs> and yes, I've got the freaking British passport one GD time. Um, yeah. So, all right. And on that note, we're going to move to Julia's Corner. Okay, sit back and relax, and welcome to Julia's Corner. Today, we're going to talk about how to make water taste better. Amen. <laughs> ah, it's so difficult to drink water. I mean, literally at work, uh, I created like this poll so that people, like my teammates, can track like how many ounces mm-hmm. they've had that day, and it, it's helpful, but it's still hard to actually do the deed. To just drink the water. <laughs> um, I found um, a WikiHow um, article mm-hmm. on how to make water taste better. It was co-authored by Jeff Siegel and Jessica Gibson. It was last updated April 21st, 2023. So um, of all the ways, um, I'm going to skip the obvious, you know, berries, watermelon, blueberries. Um, okay, they recommend adding 
fresh herbs, which I would never have thought to do. Um, they say muddle mint, basil, or sage into your glass to add like a herbal flavor. I hope I'm even saying that right. Um, for example, you can try like a strawberry, basil, water, or a watermelon, mint water, or a lemon thyme water. Have you ever tried that? I've, I've had mint and water, which is fine. I mean, it just like, it tastes crispier, I guess, but it doesn't taste like Oh, give me that water. To be like, yeah, give me that water. Well, and I've, I've had individual items that you mentioned, not the grouping. Right. The grouping does not, is not appealing to me at all. Also, I like, (laughs) I like time, but I don't I'm know not drinking how you time would water. have time water. I don't have like, time for time, if you hear what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I prefer, I've had all the flavored waters and stuff. I prefer just plain water. Plain things. water? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cold yeah, yeah, yeah. water. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I used to do the um, the one where you squeeze the drops in. Uh, it was in the little Mio. gray. Oh, Remember yes. Mio? Mio, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Squeezing that? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I can't. Well, I can't deal with that. It's funny. I was. Um, oh my gosh! What are those powdered drinks that you put in there? You could mm-hmm. buy. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my husband does that with A um, and W powder to yeah. make like a root beer There's flavor. Like too chemically tasting to me. Like well, that's always, the thing. they have a weird taste. Yeah, it made me. It made me sick actually. And mm. then my mom reminded me that when I was little, my brother and I got sick from like a a drink mix that she would use i don't know whether it was like tang or one of she said mm-hmm. one of she said one of the ingredients was making us sick so she had to stop mm-hmm. doing that and i was like well what ingredient she's like i don't remember <laughs> i'm yeah, like oh yeah. well, maybe that's something inside of the little that's it, could, in, be like, dye. Yeah. Maybe a it dye. could be a dye it could be it could be a dye um so I'll just have to keep experimenting on myself until I find out which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. The other thing they recommend is actually, and I never thought to do this, like adding a juice or a tea, like actually like not a tea bag. I've done that before, but the actual like a splash of juice or one of your f- favorite teas to make it lightly flavored. Have you ever done mm, that? Mm-mm. I haven't I've heard know. of that. I've heard of that for kids, though. I mean, right? I do that. Did that for you all, but yeah. that was to water down the citrus um, yeah. effect. I've, I've of heard the of that for kids. Juice. If you don't want to give them too much juice, but you, they want the taste of sweet without, yeah, too much sweet. Well, I've heard I, of I, spritzers I, with like the carbonated the water. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, the seltzer yeah. water yeah. with a splash yeah. of juice, but not just straight. I've had that water. Yeah. yeah. No. And, they're, so, and they go further. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> they go further, and they're saying if you want to make it a little bit savory, add tomato juice or vegetable juice to the water. Oh, no. That's a hell that. no. Yeah. That's a, yeah. <laughs> no. I hate tomato yeah. juice. I read that, and I was like, wait till I share it with the girl. That sounds so disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're oh going to move God. on. <laughs> Well, they obviously mention the fruit, but vegetable peels? No. No, yeah, yeah. No. To have, I mean, I can't, I'm, just, I'm thinking like, part of the right. I guess if the only thing would be cucumber, would be the only thing I would like 
be fine with. But if you put I carrots or something in my thing, that. I'm like, what is wrong I'm with you? I'm not putting feel peelings like, of anything in Who threw in away the water? their trash in my drink? You know what I mean? I, like, yeah. It's like, <laughs> right? Am I right? I mean. Ooh. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> okay. I don't so know, far, just... I'm drinking plain water, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, okay, okay, they say, since peels and skins can accumulate pesticides, reach for mm-hmm. o- organic produce. I mean, but come on, people. But that just animal no. on it. That's the only difference. <laughs> oh. You know how many people get, like, E. coli and salmonella just from the peel of a fruit now? <laughs> oh. Every two seconds, something's being recalled. I just I cannot recalled. even... <laughs> oh yeah, strawberries yeah, exactly. are being recalled. Uh-huh. <laughs> are they? Oh, poor strawberries. The, fr- I love the frozen, strawberries. the the frozen, the frozen oh, bad one. Okay. Still, I feel some bad. Brown beef was recalled as well from some. Sh- I forgot where. Somewhere is not lot, in Jersey, New York. Some place in ground beef um, is being recalled. Ugh, you just can't trust anything nowadays. Um. They also recommend water flavor enhancers. Uh, dissolve a low calorie flavor enhancer into your water. Maybe that's what you're. Uh, yeah, like that's what he's, yeah, that's what he's. Yeah, that's what he's using. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so that's very common. But like I said, I'm not sure if I can even. If, yeah. Yeah. You know. Oh, cinnamon. No. No. Yeah. Cinnamon water? No. <laughs> Hard pass. Hard pass. <laughs> and then last but not least, they also recommend making ice cubes using juice and putting it in your water, which is basically juice in the that's water. That's the water so like, down. No. That's the water <laughs> down. <laughs> down. <laughs> I think I'm going to stop no. there because I'm getting really grossed out and I'm not going to be able to drink the water from thinking of all these additions. So that's it. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, um, Classic water. I do I do regular water and uh if I want to mix it up then I'll do the rubius um which is a red what is it red something yeah uh, it's a red tea red tea but it's red oh, bush yeah, yeah. red yeah, bush, red bush tea. tea and it has a, a naturally uh sweet flavor to it mm. light very light just a light sweetness and so you can put it it's the tea bag you can put it in and put it in for yeah. maybe you know 30 seconds to a, a minute and um i can do iced tea with that and yeah. give myself a different taste for the water but all the yeah. other stuff in there is like no yeah i agree nope. i use a tea bag no. i'll do like green yeah. tea or something mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. i remember but i have to have ice have to. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I have ice in mine all the time. Yeah. Some people just... Yeah. Room temp. I can do room do temp. Like warm water. I can do room temp with the bottled water. Yeah, I can do room temp. Um, I do hot water. Gabby does hot water. I do hot water. Oh, you do hot, hot plain water. water. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it... <laughs> I started doing it when I went to Korea because they do a lot oh. of warm water or barley tea. Okay. Um, as like, a, I think it was just because back in the day I had boiled their water and then you just end up drinking hot water. But right. I think it also has like soothing properties because it's warm and relaxes okay. your yeah. stomach. So I started doing that because it's it relaxes me. <laughs> so well, yeah. But I get my water in. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. Yeah. Hot, I boil some water and pour it in a cup. <laughs> 
Wow. Well, thank you for explaining the origins of that because I was like, what happened <laughs> yeah, to yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I started, yeah, started doing I've Korea. done, when I was, there was a, one of my many diets, there was a diet that recommended um, hot water in the morning to start. Yeah, it's really good in the morning. That's what and, I do in the morning. Um, oh. So I was doing that in the beginning where I, when you wake up, you just have um, hot water to drink and you could put a lemon if you want but just hot water and then it like um, eases the stomach into breakfast and it helps with the starting the digestion if you put the lemon in it and um I think I did it when I was doing the jazzercise I was trying to lose weight to do (laughs) to teach jazzercise and also kind of at least for me I've noticed very personally that sometimes my stomach is a little acidic in the morning so when I drink a cup of warm water like, again, everything relaxes, and this acid isn't just as potent. So when I eat breakfast, I don't have the slight indigestion that I might get. Right. Because yeah. it's, it's been diluted and, yeah. and chilled out. And then sometimes right. in the evening, I might do the hot water. It okay. depends. Like winter time, I might do. Yeah. But the warning is that hot water up. is excruciatingly it's hot, hot <laughs> compared hot. to hot coffee. <laughs> yeah, you know, hot. it's like... It's like extra hot. Yeah. What you it stays would, hot longer. It stays hot longer. Yeah. And in the Yeti cups, oh yeah. my gosh. Oh my god. And, we, <laughs> and in the in the winter, it's Fire. great for staying staying yes. warm. It's like, like sucking on lava rocks. Yeah. If you're cold Ooh. and you get some warm water, it's like yeah. immediately you warm up. It's yeah. it's so yeah. yeah yeah. It's so like nice in the winter. Yeah. Summer is not as much, but no, winter is a good, a good a winter thing for to that. do. Yeah. <laughs> Summertime now, I just, and the cup that you bought for oh, us. Oh, yes. Yeah. I have my, I have my, fill it up with ice and water. Mm-hmm. And Very good. yeah, I try to get three of these, but most times it's probably <laughs> one. <laughs> I hear you. But. I've been on a really bad coffee Right to like mm. Coke Zero, yeah. like maybe a little glass of water, which is bad. I know that. I know that. I will mend my ways, people. <laughs> I mean, I'm I drink. go coffee, coffee, and then don't do, drink anything. Well, <laughs> well, same here. But I try to see. I drink through the night too. Right. Yeah. I wake up and and sip through the night. I. I drink. She pees a lot in the night too, so she gets up yeah. a lot. <laughs> but I get thirsty, so I drink through the night, and then in the morning, um, I have to have some water, either before or after the coffee, because it's just like my mouth is dry. So I'll have some coffee, some water then, and but then through the day is when I'm just sipping or whatever. Um, if I work out. I will drink a lot of water, yeah. Um, especially afterwards. But since I'm not working out a heck of a lot, <laughs> I don't tend to have that thirst, and I'm not mm-hmm. outside, so right. Um, so I'm drinking two cups of coffee, and um, that's lasting through the day. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's I have to force myself to re- to drink the water but it's yeah. not because i don't like the taste of water no um i just for- i literally I just, forget i just yeah, yeah. I i'd rather the coffee well so. sometimes i even forget coffee like i'll make a cup of coffee and 
luckily it's in the Yeti cup, so it stays warm, but I right. can forget it for like an hour. And it's like, oh yeah, I have a cup of coffee. Like, I can, I'm so good funny. at not drinking anything yeah. for what? long periods of time. <laughs> oh, no. It's yeah. not good. <laughs> so yeah, I have oh, to remember, goodness. actively remember like, oh yeah, I have a drink with me. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, all righty. Um, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you for the next episode of Prickly Ben's podcast. Right. And Julia, what do we say? Stay prickly. All right. See you next time. See you. Bye. Bye.